man, I, I, I need some of you to get up uh, on Easter uh, uh, with your alarm clock because uh, I need some of you to come at, at 7. I just do. Um, you know, if we advertise a 9 o'clock service with children's ministry available and then at 11, and, and the truth is we got to keep the same kind of setup, you know, six feet apart and all that kind of stuff. So normally on Easter we about, have about 1,200 people. And, of course, that's not going to happen, uh, not here in the building. Hopefully we will online. Uh, but, uh, boy, if some of you who are uh, uh, just, if you can do the 7 o'clock thing and then go out to breakfast, that would be awesome because I'd love to make room for 150 or so at 9. Uh, and so, enough said. Uh, would you, if you have a Bible, why don't you grab it? And, by the way, if you're watching online or visiting this morning, just... Just know that we're a people uh, here at Climate the Christian. We love Jesus. Uh, that's what it's all about. We want to know him. Yeah, we want to know him. We want to grow in him. We want to serve him. We want to share him regularly. Our, our, our life, our little family, community of people. It's all about Jesus. And, you know, I'm looking forward to uh, Easter coming up, celebrating the resurrection. I think we're calling it Resurrection Sunday or something like that. I don't get too hung up on words. It's all about him. But um, I, I had planned on looking at some stories, kind of like we did last week, some stories uh, that happen in Jesus' life, historical account, by the way, of things that took place in the life of Jesus um, prior, of course, to his crucifixion and then resurrection. And so, you know, out of tradition uh, for 33 years, uh, here in the life of the church, you know, I always spend a Sunday on the crucifixion, uh, getting ready for uh, the Easter celebration. But I read the crucifixion this week in all the different Gospels. Mark 15, Luke 23, Matthew 25, 6, and 7. He was a wordy dude. Uh, uh, John 18, 19, 20. I... Whew, Man, the crucifixion story is amazing. Just what God has done for us through the crucifixion. It's just amazing. And I, I thought, I can't, I got to do more than one Sunday on the crucifixion. So you're going to get the next three weeks <laughs> preparing for the resurrection. We're going to look at the crucifixion story. I want to draw in things, the different gospel writers. I'm so thankful that the different gospel writers saw different glimpses into Jesus and what he was accomplishing for us on the cross. And each one will say something special. It might only be a verse, but they'll say something that kind of distinguishes uh, their reflection on, of course, the, the crucifixion. So uh, we're going to work on that and do that together for the next three weeks. I'm going to call this little um, made-for-television miniseries. Uh, <laughs> A Netflix special. Um, gonna gonna call it the life-changing power of the cross. If I could, the life-changing power of the cross. How many feel like your life has been changed through the power of the cross? You're not the person you used to be. The life-changing power of the cross. How many have seen someone else's life changed through the power? 
of the cross, the life-changing power of the cross. Now, no symbol is probably more recognized throughout the world uh, than the cross of Jesus Christ. You see it on churches. We see it on cathedrals, of course, if you've been over to Europe. On hilltops. I, I, I grew up, uh, or not grew up, actually, went to college in Eugene, Oregon, and there's a little knoll uh, next to the Willamette River, uh, right next to town. We were driving down a certain section of Eugene. There was this big white cross on top of Spencer's Butte, and of course, uh, dark green fir trees behind it, so it, it popped. It was about 10 feet tall, uh, white cross. I, I loved it. I, I'm not sure the people of Eugene knew why it was there. But the cross had touched someone's life. You know what I'm saying? It had changed someone's life. And because of that, they hiked up there and built this big cross. Because they wanted to tell the world about the power, the life-changing power of the cross. Now, I'm not sure uh, if people understood why it was there. But I did. And I loved it. I'd be driving down that road, and it would just remind me of the power, life-changing power of the cross. Did you know that there, there's a cross on the top of Mount Everest? 29,032 feet. Uh, Sir Edmund Hillary, uh, one of the first confirmed mountaineers that climbed Mount Everest in 1953. He was from New Zealand. Uh, planted a small cross on the top of Mount Everest. Now, I don't know how it's weathered the, the elements up there for the last, what would that be, almost 70 years. Cross meant something to him. I, I don't know whether it was a religious upbringing, part of a culture, or whether he knew the deep, penetrating power of the love of God that came through the cross. I just think that's interesting. You know, the cross is pretty common. I, I heard a story of a, a young woman who went to a jewelry store and she was looking for a cross. And of course, a lot of people wear a cross and that's great and everything. But she was, the, the uh, jewelry store guy was showing her different crosses and, uh, and she was looking and looking and looking. And then she finally said, do you have any crosses without the little man on it? Now, you know, I, you know, I realize the Catholic Church still has the man on the cross. How many know he's not on the cross? Hallelujah. <laughs> it's good to remember, understand the significance of the cross, but Jesus is not on the cross anymore. Hallelujah. <laughs> he raised from the dead. So, you know, I, you know, I don't know where she was at or anything. I'm not trying to criticize her, but it's interesting. When we built this building, I think... Did you know that March this year, 14 years, 14 years we've been in this building, and um, wow, 14 years, and uh, you know, I, I'm involved in a few things uh, here in our community, I go to things, I'm on boards and stuff, and um, people will ask, well, what do you do? I mean, they think I'm a normal person, and I kind of am, but <laughs> people think I'm normal, so they say, well, what do you do, you know? And I say, well, I'm a pastor. And they go, oh. And uh, so then they will say, well, what church do you pastor? You know, as though they're being friendly. As though, well, maybe I'll come visit. 
And I'll say, well, Klamath Christian Center. Well, let's say, where's that? And I, I'll say, well, have you ever been up Foothills Boulevard and seen that big building on the hillside there right underneath the water tanks, you know, the hog in the background? And, and they'll say, oh, I didn't know that was a church. Have you ever seen these three crosses out front? <laughs> I mean, I realize the cross doesn't make the church. How many know it's people who've been impacted through the power of the cross? We're the church. I just thought that was, that was interesting. These crosses, by the way, if you've ever driven up about three or four in the afternoon, they glow with the sun uh, shining on them. They're amazingly beautiful. Especially special thanks to Dave at Pruitt's Auto Body who painted those and donated them to the church 14 years ago. Uh, a blessing. So let's do it. Let's look at the, the let's look at the crucifixion story. Um, I might spend a little longer in it today uh, than I will the next weeks but I will be looking from different accounts each week so this morning we're in Matthew's account we're going to look a little bit at 26 and 27 uh, we'll take a glimpse at something Luke says because I feel like it's very important for the opening of this series so um, if you're familiar with the story of the crucifixion um, Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, after he'd spent time praying there with his disciples. He's taken to Caiaphas' home, uh, the high priest at that time. The Jewish leaders had hired some wicked men to bring false testimony against Jesus, hoping they could come up with a charge to have him executed. Uh, unfortunately, the longer it went, you know, their stories didn't match up. It was obvious that they were false uh, charges and uh, the high priest getting pretty frustrated he finally turned to Jesus and said Jesus are you the son of God Matthew 26 verse 64 Jesus declared I am and from now on you will see the son of man uh, sitting at the right hand of the throne of God and coming on the clouds of heaven how many know uh, that will be true for all of those who crucified Jesus. From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the throne of God and coming in the clouds of heaven. The Bible says when he returns a second time, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. So, um, by the way, the same will be true for us when we see Jesus. Right now, I think it's Peter who says, uh, even though we've never seen him, we love him. Don't we? Even though we've never seen him, we love him. And even though we've never seen him, we believe in him with joy inexpressible and full of glory. But there will be a day when we'll see him seated at the right hand of the throne of God and coming on the clouds of heaven. <laughs> Could someone say hallelujah? In fact, I think you should just clap. Let's just thank him for that. Lord, I don't know to what degree that truth could penetrate our soul, but I pray there'd be something of, of passion stirred up in our hearts as a result of that truth. Every eye will see. 
Every tongue will confess, Jesus, that you are Lord. When the high priest heard that, of course, he tore his robe, threw dust in the air, which was a sign of, you know, kind of repentance back then, or, you know, blasphemy. You declared yourself to be God. And so uh, all of those there who were at that council, they, uh, the, the high priest asked, well, what do you say? And they said, death, death, death. So he's, he's uh, committed to be executed. They spit on him. They slapped him. They struck him in the face. Uh, they took him to Pilate, uh, the, uh, the Roman governor at that time. Pilate could find nothing. <laughs> he could find nothing that Jesus had done, certainly nothing that would require him to be executed. He knew, Pilate knew it was out of envy and selfish interest that the uh, Jewish leaders, of course, had brought him. But there was a custom, uh, a custom at the feast of the Passover to, to release one of the prisoners. Uh, so the... the the Roman government had adopted a custom that was actually part of the Jewish culture. You see, at the Passover, every year, this started back in the book of Exodus, at the Passover, there was a sacrifice once a year for the sins of all the people. So once a year, the, the priest would offer a lamb, a spotless lamb without blemish, uh, as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. But on that particular day, they would bring two lambs two lambs one would be examined and 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 it would be perfect they would decide this one is perfect and, and so they would sacrifice that lamb for the sins of the people the other lamb they would release and let go to, to run away through the city as a reminder that God had released them of their sins so on this particular day, Passover day, uh, the Roman government uh, held to a tradition uh, trying to appease the Jewish people. And so Pilate approached the crowd and asked, who do you want me to release to you? Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, or Barabbas, who was known as a murderer man who had led an insurrection or a riot against uh, the Roman people the people cried Barabbas Barabbas and of course the reason they did is because the Jewish leaders had gone through the crowd and bribed men to ask for Barabbas to be released it's amazing what money will do but anyway uh, so he was stunned literally stunned I mean, he'd heard all the stories about what Jesus had done, the things he'd taught. He'd heard about the miracles he performed. He was stunned that the Jewish people were turning on this one who had loved so much and done so much. So he said, what shall I do with Jesus? And they cried, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Now, it's interesting, John's gospel said that uh, Pilate's wife had had a dream in the night that there was something about this man, Jesus, and uh, that her husband was to have nothing to do with him uh, and nothing to do with what the Jewish leaders wanted. So she came running in about this time, and she said to her husband, uh, have nothing to do with this man. And so uh, Pilate went out publicly to announce uh, that he believed that Jesus was innocent he washed his hands publicly in front of all the people. What's amazing 
Matthew 27, verse 25, this is what the Jewish leaders said. They said, let his blood be on us and on our children. Can you imagine? How deceived do we become when we're trapped in sin? It's amazing how blinded we can become. Let his blood be on us and on our children. Well, anyway, uh, Pilate had Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. Some of you have seen the picture. Uh, maybe you saw the movie uh, from Mel Gibson, uh, The Passion. But it's uh, you know, brutal and uh, uh, probably was more brutal than this picture. But nevertheless, the scourging with... Uh, uh, pieces of glass and lead that literally, you know, tore the flesh. They had Jesus flogged, and we're going to pick it up now in verse 27 of uh, Matthew uh, chapter 27. It says, when the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium, praetorium was the area where all the soldiers, as many as a thousand, would gather. Uh, when, when the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium, and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. Uh, they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand, and then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Uh, then they led him away to crucify him. Now, I'm not going to show you those pictures, but I think most of us are, are familiar with the crucifixion. Uh, I remember when I was in a Bible study with a, a bunch of high school students, and I was a young Christian, and and the teacher of the study stopped for a minute and he said, you know what that means? They crucified him. I mean, it, they say it so, you know, and then they crucified him. Of course, the people they're writing to knew what that meant, you know, how brutal it was, uh, how he was, of course, you know, nailed through, historians say, either the two bones in the wrist or the hands. He's hung from a cross and, of course, nailed with his ankles as well. But just the, the brutality of hanging there and basically eventually dying of suffocation because of exhaustion and blood loss. At some point, you couldn't lift yourself up to get a, a drink again and, or a, a, you know, a breath again. And so basically it's very excruciating because of the pain, pulling yourself up. Uh, then they led him away to crucify him. I'm going to switch to Luke's gospel here because there's something Luke inserts here, right here in the historical account that uh, caught his attention uh, beginning in verse 32 down through verse 34 it says two others both criminals were led out to be executed with him and when they came to the place uh, called the skull which is this uh, knoll at the uh, probably the highest point in the city of Jerusalem this knoll uh, that kind of looks like a skull when they came to the place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross, and criminals 
were also crucified. The criminals were also crucified. One on his right, one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. And soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice uh, as a symbol of indifference toward Jesus. And soldiers gambled uh, for his clothing by throwing dice. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Could we say that together? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. The Jewish leaders, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Pilate, who didn't have the courage to stand on what he knew to be true. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. The men who nailed Jesus to the cross and rolled dice for his clothes. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Let's talk a little bit about the life-changing power of the cross. To me, when I think of the cross, and of course I love ours, it's beautiful, and certainly doesn't look like the one that Jesus bled on after being scourged and of course hung there <clears throat> but one of the things the cross symbolizes I believe is the depravity of man the fact that we need a savior we need a savior you know Pilate he knew he knew the Jewish leaders wanted to kill Jesus out of envy he knew it was self-interest and selfishness he knew he knew the Jewish leaders were losing control of the people because Jesus was becoming so famous and 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 you know people had gone out and uh, cried Hosanna remember they with the palm branches in the and they put their clothes like a king in front of the donkey as he rode into Jerusalem and, and the, the jealousy and the hatred in the Jewish leaders Pilate knew but he didn't have the courage to stand up against the mob. In fact, Mark's gospel, Mark 15, verse 14 through 15, when the, when the people cried out, uh, crucify him, crucify him, Mark, Mark, Mark says uh, uh, that Pilate said, why? What crime has he committed? But they shouted louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd. Wanting to satisfy the crowd. Pilate released Barabbas to them, had Jesus flogged, and handed him over to be crucified. He knew what was right, but wanting to satisfy the crowd. How many would just love to point your finger at Pilate? But remember, when you point your finger, how many are pointing back? As much as I, I grieve, I'm shocked at Pilate. Shocked. Like you, you believe in integrity, honesty, courage. Doing the right thing is always the right thing. I don't care the circumstances. Doing the right thing is always the right thing. I don't care how difficult it is or how challenging it is. I just believe 
doing the right thing is always the right thing. But I'll be honest, I have caved. I've caved under the power of temptation. I've caved in light of something I knew was wrong, but I, I did it because the power of sin controlled me. How many know there are areas in your life where you want to do what's right, but you find yourself doing what's wrong? Does anyone know what I'm saying? Am I preaching to the choir here? It says in, uh, of course, Romans 6, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but it's really true. This is what it says in Romans chapter 7, verse 15 through 25, the Apostle Paul. He says, I don't understand myself at all. I really want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do the very thing I hate. I know perfectly well that what I am doing is wrong, and my bad conscience shows that I agree, but I can't help myself because it is sin inside of me that makes me do these evil things. I know that I'm rotten through and through so far as my old sinful nature is concerned. No matter which way I turn, I can't make myself do right. I want to, but I can't. And when I want to do good, I don't. And when I try not to do wrong, I do it anyway. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin? Thank God. The answer is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Do you understand what a powerful force sin is? Sin is a powerful, powerful force. Like gravity, it controls a lot of things, including us sometimes. We make decisions that we're not proud of. We all understand what guilt feels like. Peter, on the night before Jesus was crucified, uh, Jesus told his disciples, my hour has come and all of you will be scattered. Peter steps up, never, Lord. I'll never leave you. I will even die for you. Jesus, lovingly, kindly. He says, truly, truly, which means like you can believe this. Truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, before the cock crows, rooster crows, you will deny me three times. There's something about our nature. Even though we, you know, get up in the morning, we shower, we put on nice clothes, maybe a little perfume, you know what I'm saying? We always present our best foot forward, don't we? I changed twice this morning. First, first outfit made me look fat. Sorry, ladies, but... Uh, you know, I know you worry about that, but, you know, we do. But <laughs> it's just so funny. We're so funny. We do try to put the best foot forward, but the truth is the power of sin. The power of sin. We do what we don't want to do and the things we don't want to do, we do. Who will set me free from this body of death is what it says in the New American Standard. Who will set me free from this body of death? And I don't know if you're familiar with history at that time, but the body of death, literally, if you murdered someone in that culture, they would chain that dead body to your ankle and you would drag it around with you as it rotted. The Apostle Paul, he's talking about the sin nature that dominates us. And he says, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
what he goes on to say. And then in chapter 8, verse 1, therefore there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the life-changing power of the cross. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jeremiah 17, verse 8, says, The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? But here's the good news. 1 Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ died for sins once for all. Christ died for sins once for all. Past, before you came to Christ. Presence, while you're learning to walk as a new creation in Christ. Future. Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Did you know it was the power of sin that drove you away from God? It was the power of sin that sometimes we don't understand. Why are kids going that direction in their life? It's the power of sin. The power of sin, it wants us to deny God and satisfy our own flesh, our own lust. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. It's within our nature. It penetrates every fiber and cell in your being. It's who we are. That's why we need a savior. That, that's why we need someone to pay the penalty for our sin and set us free from this body of death through the power of the resurrection. How many know Romans 2 verse 4 says the kindness of God leads to repentance? It's the kindness of God. The kindness of God leads to repentance. And You know, if we don't understand the power of sin and the mercy of God on the cross, the kindness of God that leads to repentance, we'll become a very wicked religious person. Wicked, self-righteous <laughs> religious person I don't know about you I, I just have to be too honest about myself and my need for a savior I can't go there Luke adds something significant to the gospel he, he caught something now Luke, Luke did not see Jesus crucified at least we don't think he did uh, historically because he wasn't one of the disciples Luke became a believer after Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead so we don't think he saw it but Luke was a, a medical doctor and a historian and because of that he investigated thoroughly and someone he was talking to was it Mary Jesus mother was it John was it uh, one of the other women maybe one of the other men who watched Jesus be crucified someone said to Luke and he wrote it down for all of us hallelujah from the cross Jesus first words as he was crucified father forgive them for they know not what they do Hallelujah. I think we all know what it's like to feel guilty when God is like 10,000 miles away when you feel like a failure when you're totally convinced God doesn't love you you certainly can't love yourself. But did you know that God didn't create you to carry guilt? He didn't create you to carry guilt in your life. One of the reasons why the Garden of Eden was so wonderful, 
not only did they walk with God in the cool of the evening, but there was no guilt, no shame, no hiding from God, which, by the way, will be restored in heaven. Could someone say hallelujah? You know, Hebrews, Hebrews 4 talks about rest, about learning how to rest in the work, the life-changing power of the cross, learning to rest in what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. On the seventh day, God rested. And what he wants for us, more than anything, he wants for us to learn to rest. Learn to rest in Jesus and receive. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Guilt is a huge problem. I mean, it's a major problem for for health physically, it, uh, it affects, uh, uh, could certainly be the cause of some diseases, uh, both uh, uh, psychologists and doctors would agree. It adds stress to your life, robs your energy and your strength. How many know when you're down on yourself, life sucks? And uh, it robs your creativity, causes discouragement, depression, causes defensiveness. Sometimes we feel guilty, but we react in anger trying to defend ourselves. It's amazing. It causes anxiety and fear, a lack of confidence. Uh, Sir Arthur uh, Conan Doyle, okay? He's the author of the Sherlock Holmes books. I don't know if you have ever read any of them. Uh, lived in the 18, uh, late 1800s through about 1950. He's a great author, but he was quite a prankster, okay? So one time back in the early 1900s, uh, he sent an anonymous note to 50 prominent Englishmen in, in Great Britain. They were businessmen, political leaders, all wealthy, powerful men. And, and the note simply said, all is found out. Flee at once. All is found out. Flee at once. Uh, he said in 48 hours... 32 of them had left the country, okay? <laughs> Little guilt there, I guess, you know. Did you know that God wants you to be free from guilt? Free. It says in Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ set us free. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Freedom. No one knows guilt better than King David. And I'm not sure how many are familiar with his story in 2 Samuel chapter 11 when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. But one of the, one of the dangers with guilt is that we'll either try to hide it, minimize it, We'll try to rationalize it. We'll try to compromise. We'll lower our standards. <clears throat> King David, he, he wrestled through all these things. He was up on the terrace uh, on top of his palace one day, looking out over the city, sees this beautiful woman uh, bathing on the roof of her house down below. Um, should have walked away, but uh, instead asked his servant, who is that? And uh, they came back, back and said, uh, it is Bathsheba, <clears throat> the wife of Uriah the Hittite. I think they were trying to underline the wife. But unfortunately, David uh, 
wasn't listening very well. Oh, Uriah the Hittite, he's a soldier, famous soldier. He's one of David's mighty men. It's listed in the end of 2 Samuel. Uh, gosh, he's going to be gone for about six months. Uh, he's fighting Israel's battles out in the countryside. And certainly should get to know this woman. So uh, he invited her up for tea. Ended up spending the night. A few weeks later, she sent him a message, I am pregnant. Bummer. I've been found out. How do I hide this? So, uh, you know, David's first thought, I know what I'll do. I'll get Uriah to come back. We'll have a little chat, send him home. I'm free. Well, he invited Uriah back. They had a wonderful meal. Uh, he got Uriah drunk. Ask a few questions like, how's the battle? Why don't you go home and spend the evening with your wife? Unfortunately, he didn't go to see his wife. He slept down in the entry of David's palace. When, when David found out that in the morning, he was so angry. He said, why didn't you go home? And, and of course, uh, Uriah said, how could I get, go home to the comfort of my wife? when my brothers and fellow shoulders are out on the battlefield. <laughs> David found out that Uriah was a more righteous man than him. He thought, man, I don't know what else to do. I'll tell you what, let's try this again. Let's have another meal. Come over to my house tonight. We'll have a few drinks, great meal, and then maybe I can send you home. So he tried it again next morning, same thing. Slept in the doorway, wouldn't go home to see his wife. So uh, David gave up. He sent Uriah back to the front line with a note in his pocket. Give this to Joab, the commander of the army. And in the note, he said, I want you to put Uriah on the front of the effort right up to the wall of the city. Then I want all the men to pull back. I want him to be killed. So sure enough, they fought together right up to the front of the walled city and then they pulled back and then someone dropped a stone and Uriah was dead. Committed murder uh, in an attempt to uh, cover his sin. How many know this? Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. It seems so innocent in the moment. I'll just, you know, just a look, just a glance. Seems so innocent. But sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, cost you more than you want to pay. Now David has the guilt of adultery and he has the guilt of murder. He hadn't fixed anything. So he says, maybe this will help. I'll marry her. Uh, my new wife will be pregnant. Everyone will cheer. And, you know, we'll move on. Look good to all the people watching, but how many know, in spite of what it looks like on the outside, God sees the inside. God knew what had happened, and so he sent the prophet Nathan. I'm going to let you read that one on your own. Nathan uh, exposes David's sin with a wonderful um, 
parable. It's beautiful. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Verse 13 of chapter 12, then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die. Hallelujah. Now in the law, because he had murdered a man, according to the law, he should have been killed. Okay? But Nathan prophesies the coming of Jesus Christ. He says, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you. You won't have to die because someone died in your place. You don't have to die. That's the power of the cross. Hallelujah. You don't have to die. Someone died in your place. For all eternity. You know, we think it's all about the stock market. We think it's all about what we achieve here in America for the brief, short life we have. But the truth is, we're all going to live forever. Somewhere. Jesus died. The power of the cross so that we wouldn't have to die for all eternity. Did you know that David grieved over his sin for at least two years? When you read through the book of Psalms, you'll see glimpses of it in some of the Psalms he wrote over a period of time. It wasn't that he didn't believe God had forgiven him, but sometimes grief, grief is what leads us to repentance. You, you know, it says in Romans, the kindness of God leads to repentance. And there's something about sinning against God. When you grow, when you grow, and life's not all about you, and it's not all about you, how you feel, and not all about what you want to accomplish in life, at some point, you start caring about God as a person, as someone who loves you, and of course, you love them. And, and so as a result of that, this power of sin, this is not condemnation. I hope you don't hear it this way. But, but all of a sudden, the power of sin, it's, it's Lord, I don't want to sin because I love you. And I don't want the power of sin to control my life. Not because I want to be a holy, starched Christian person, self-righteous, self-centered but it's because I want to love you. And that gets to the core. It gets to the core of our sin. See, the goal in life is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, not just be a good person. The goal in life is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and not just look good on the outside. It's to love God from our heart. I, I can't do that without the help of the Holy Spirit. I need the person of the Holy Spirit and I need his help so much. Psalms 32, verse uh, three through five. Here's what David said. He said, when I refused to confess my sin, I was weak and miserable. I groaned all day long. My strength evaporated like water in summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sin to you and stopped trying to hide them I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. 
all my guilt is gone. <laughs> That's the life-changing power of the cross. All my guilt is gone. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, here's where we get it wrong. We think God forgives everything up to the point where we get saved. Okay? And, and so now that we're a new Christian, we're not going to make any more mistakes. How many know that's true? Okay. What we don't understand is that the grace that saved us is the grace that carries us. The grace that saved us is the grace that carries us. It allows us to draw near to God even when we fail. So that even when we fail, we can say, God, what's wrong with me? This power of sin. How do I, how do I change my heart? How do I work with your help through the word of God and the help of the Holy Spirit? How do I, how do, how do I change my mind? restored by the renewing of my mind? How do I work at changing my values? How do I get deep within my heart so I believe something deeply about you that begins to change me from the inside out about who I'm becoming? See, the grace that saved us is the grace that keeps us. It says in Jude, last couple of verses, he is able to keep you from falling. Hallelujah. And to present you before his glorious throne without spot and any wrinkle in your life. It's, it's, it's him. That's the power of the cross. It's the life-changing power of the cross. See, we didn't become a whole lot better after we got saved. Now, we've been changing. Anyone better than you were? Yeah, I am, you know. On a scale of 1 to 10, I'm a 4. Hallelujah. The power of the cross. Hallelujah. The life-changing power of the cross. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. As they come, of course, you know I always have something else to say. Sorry about that. What happens when you come to Jesus and confess your sin? Number one, he forgives me instantly. Isaiah 55, verse 7. He forgives me instantly. Your groveling doesn't help, by the way. He forgives me instantly. Number two, he forgives me completely. He forgives me, not if I try harder. Not if I promise to be a good boy from now on out. Okay? He forgives me completely. Colossians 2, verse 13 and 14. This is the Phillips translation, but it just makes so much sense. He has forgiven all your sins. He has utterly wiped out the evidence of broken commands, which always hung over our heads. He wiped them out. And he has completely annulled it by nailing it to the cross. Hallelujah. 
He forgives me instantly. He forgives me completely. He forgives me repeatedly. If you're a perfectionist, this is totally hard for you. I am ruining your world right now. Okay. God does not keep score. Well, Lord, I've come with that before. Oh, really? I don't remember. I forgave it and forgot. Sorry, got a bad memory. He forgives it repeatedly. God's not keeping score. The last one, Jesus forgives freely. You can't do anything to add anything to it. All through the power of the cross. Hallelujah. I want to invite you to stand with me.